Hi, everybody. This is Dan Walker. Welcome to another edition of U.S. Law Radio. If you're close to the construction industry and you stay in touch with the news, you're undoubtedly aware of a number of unfortunate crane accidents around the country, and incidents are on the rise. And when crane accidents do occur, they usually don't come out well. But how is the federal government responding? U.S. law member David Johnson, a partner with the Chicago firm Smith Amundsen, is very close to the situation and joins us now with some answers. David, welcome into U.S. Law Radio. Thank you. David, with the recent number of catastrophic crane accidents in New York City, Florida, and Texas, how is the federal government and, in fact, the crane industry responding? Well, actually, uh, Dan, the rash of accidents that have occurred provided an impetus to adopt regulations and standards for cranes that have been in the works for some time. For example, the Occupational Safety and Health Act, OSHA, of 1970 created regulations for cranes in 1926.550, adopting industry consensus standards like ASME B30.5 1968. I know that sounds a little complicated, but it isn't. In July of 2003, 33 years after OSHA was adopted, 23 members of the crane industry were selected and met, you know, 11 times until July 2004. That committee was called the Crane and Derrick Advisory Committee, or CDEC. In October of 2006, the advisory committee for OSHA recommended that OSHA use the document that CDEC created as a basis for proposed new regulations for cranes and derricks. In October 2008, OSHA issued the proposed rule, and in August 2010, OSHA published the final rule, which became effective on November 8, 2010. As far as industry is concerned, in May of 2007, ASPE published the first B30.5 volume that defined responsibilities and delineated the roles of entities engaged in crane operations in construction. It was a culmination of work that took about 10 years to complete. ASME B30.5 2007 became effective on March 7, 2009. Well, explain to us the difference in legal effect in violating OSHA or ASME. Well, a code is a standard that has been adopted by one or more governmental bodies and has the force of law. OSHA is a safety standard that was adopted by the United States Department of Labor. It has the force of law, and violations of OSHA can be cited by OSHA compliance officers and fines and even criminal penalties can be imposed for those violations. OSHA 1926.1400 is the new code that pertains to cranes and construction. As opposed to OSHA regulations, standards are written by experts in the field and represent the most current thinking on custom and practice in an industry. Standards are voluntary and don't have the force of law like OSHA regulations do unless they're incorporated by reference into the code. Violations of standards that are adopted by OSHA can result in the same fines and penalties as violations of OSHA regulations. ASPE B30.5-2007 is the standard that pertains to mobile cranes. It was promulgated by the American Society of Mechanical Engineers. It was not incorporated by reference into the new OSHA regulations and therefore does not have the force of law. 
So then, how are violations of OSHA and ASME used in litigation? Well, in most states, a violation of an OSHA regulation is evidence of negligence. The same is true for a violation of an ASME standard, regardless of whether the standard was incorporated by reference into OSHA. Crane experts rely on OSHA and ASME violations to assign fault for crane accidents, and plaintiffs' attorneys rely on OSHA and ASME violations to draft their complaints. Okay, David, now the big question. What are the new roles and responsibilities for crane operations contained in the new OSHA crane rules and ASME standards? Well, there are many. As far as OSHA responsibilities are concerned, OSHA creates responsibilities for four categories of entities for crane operations that are directly regulated under the new crane regulations. And they are employers, controlling entities, users of equipment, and utility companies. For employers under the new regulations, OSHA uses the term employer to primarily include employers whose employees work directly with cranes and employers whose employees work in the vicinity of cranes. These employers are subject to all provisions of the new regulations. For controlling entities, OSHA 1926-1402 assigns controlling entities specific responsibilities for ensuring that ground conditions necessary for cranes construction sites are safe. OSHA defines a controlling entity as an employer that is a prime contractor, general contractor, construction manager, or any other legal entity which has the overall responsibility for construction of the project. For users of equipment, OSHA uses the phrase to refer to the employer that is using or directing the use of the crane equipment to perform a task. The user of equipment is the one whom the controlling entity must notify of hazards in the ground conditions beneath the crane operation and setup areas. When crane operations must come close to electrical power lines, the user of equipment and utility company meet with the equipment operator and other workers who will be working in the area to review procedures that will be implemented to prevent breaching the minimum approach distance or prohibited zone and prevent electrocution. For utility companies, in order to determine and carry out safety procedures around power lines, OSHA requires employers, presumably employers whose employees work directly with cranes, to ask the utility company for the voltage information, and the utility company is required to provide the voltage information within two working days of the request. Failure to do so could result in a citation. This is a very controversial requirement under the new OSHA regulations, one that utility companies objected to because they believe it exceeded the authority of OSHA to implement such a regulation. Whether or not that particular provision will be appealed or not is is open to question still. Those are the four roles that OSHA's new regulations created for crane operations in construction. Okay, that's OSHA. What about ASME? As far as ASB responsibilities are concerned, there are much greater detail. In Chapter 5-3 of ASB B30.5, which, as you recall, concerns mobile crane operations, ASB assigns roles and responsibilities to the following entities. The crane owner, who has custodial control of the crane by virtue of a lease or ownership. The crane user, 
who arranges for the crane's presence on the work site and controls its use there, usually the crane lessee. The site supervisor who exercises supervisory control over the work site on which the crane is being used and over the work which is being performed on that site, usually the general contractor. The lift director who directly oversees the work being performed by a crane and associated rigging crew, and that would usually be an employee of the crane user, not always. And then the crane operator who directly controls the crane's functions. ASME states, that all responsibilities shall be assigned in the worksite organization. A single individual may perform one or more of these roles, and that's sort of in response to the kind of different organizational structures you see in various crane operations. For example, the difference between a mom-and-pop operation where you just have a crane operator all by himself go out to a site and perform a single lift function versus, a, let's say, a large petrochemical operation where you have various levels of responsibilities and supervisory management and so on. The responsibilities in ASME for each of the roles described are way too numerous to discuss in this short interview. The basic proposition is that the responsibility for site conditions is a management responsibility, as is the case for the controlling entity in OSHA. And the custom and practice of the crane industry is to make the crane operator responsible for crane operations from the hook of the crane up and the rigger responsible for crane operations from the hook and the crane down. Management and the lift director are responsible for all crane operations, either directly or indirectly, in their supervisory capacity. While this is simplistic, to analyze potential fault from a legal standpoint in litigation for crane accidents on construction sites, if there is a violation of OSHA that causes an accident, for example, an unqualified signal person or an unqualified rigger, one simply goes to ask these responsibilities to determine who is responsible for making sure that signal persons and riggers are qualified. That will identify all of the entities that will bear some blame for any personal injury or property damage that results from having an unqualified signal person or rigger working on a construction site. So this is essentially it in a nutshell. There's much, much more to talk about, certainly. Under these rules, I've given discussions that last at least an hour and sometimes longer regarding just ask me responsibilities. So it is a very comprehensive scheme for roles and responsibilities for crane operations on construction sites and one that is going to see a lot of activity going forward. All right, David, quite a lot to know on the subject, as you said. Hey, listen, in your 25 years as a construction lawyer, have you ever had the chance to climb up in the operator's cab of a crane? Uh, I have, and in fact, I'm going to be taking this five-day crane operators course down in Washington. Yeah, I'm going to be doing a lot of hands-on in that particular training role. All right. Now, listen, if we want to find out more on the subject, what should we do? Well, you can contact me at Smith Amundsen in Chicago or my email, and I would be more than happy to field any questions regarding the new OSHA regulations and ASME standards. David Johnson, thank you so much for joining us on this edition of U.S. Law Radio. You're welcome, Dan. That's it, folks. We're out of time. U.S. Law Radio is produced by Roger Yaffe. Send your comments and show ideas his way. This edition of U.S. Law Radio has been brought to you by SEA Limited, forensic engineering and origin cause experts working nationwide since 1970, and by Ringler Associates, 
Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided injured parties and their attorneys with the finest structured settlement services. This is Dan Walker. Thanks for listening in, and we'll see you again next time for another brand new edition of U.S. Law Radio.